So we're going to uh, open God's word together. Uh, This is the next in our series entitled Glorious, Exploring the Character of God. And the title of uh, today's uh, talk is Transcendent Yet Present. A God who is transcendent yet present. And so we're going to read together a few verses from the beginning and the end of a book called Ezekiel in the Old Testament. This is what it says. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chiba Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kiba Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And then he has this vision of uh, a strange vision, uh, it's of angels, and uh, he uh, describes it in words that are, uh, are, uh, feel a little odd to us. And then at the end of, uh, after he's tried to describe this, this is what he says. And above the expanse, over their heads, this is the angels, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. He is having a vision of this glorious God that we're talking about. And upward from what had, uh, what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as if it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then the rest of the book of Ezekiel, 48 chapters unfold. And at right at the end, the last words of Uh, the Ezekiel's prophetic word, Ezekiel has seen a city, a new city, a glorious city, seen a city with a new temple. And this is what he says. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Now, Ezekiel was an Old Testament priest, a prophet living in what were tumultuous days in the history of Israel. The temple in Jerusalem where God dwelt among his people uh, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. Survivors of what was a brutal one-sided war were deported and taken to Babylon. And Ezekiel, that's where we find Ezekiel. These terrible events provoked for God's people questions, where has God gone? Is he still able to help us? These are questions which we all ask in difficult days. 
We heard earlier a, a, a word, God speaking into Christian marriages, but many of you here today will have experienced the pain of divorce. And in those moments when things are not working out as you hoped and planned, there is a pain in your heart and you ask questions like it, uh, uh, the God's people asked in the days of Ezekiel. 18 years ago, my mother was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer. Provoke questions. Two months ago, my 57-year-old sister was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer. And I'm so grateful for numbers of you who have been praying for her. She had a, a successful operation last week and we're now waiting for chemotherapy to start. But in these moments, these painful moments where everything seems to have gone wrong, the question, where is God, is one that many of us ask. And Ezekiel gives us some answers to those questions as he underlines the importance of the transcendence and the presence or the imminence of God. Let me explain. At the beginning, the opening of Ezekiel's vision of God's glorious presence, it's somewhat strange and confusing. And it's a very simple reason for that because Ezekiel, as a man, is trying to explain and describe the one who is glorious and majestic, the God who is above the heavens, the God who has created all things. And Ezekiel is struggling with his words. He has never seen God before, and he is struggling to explain in human words what he is seeing. And so no wonder the beginning of Ezekiel is confusing and strange when we read it. He is describing one who is completely outside his frame of reference. The theological phrase that describes this is that God is transcendent. He is completely beyond our experience and understanding. Andrew Wilson says this, God cannot be compared to other gods to earthly rulers, to the sky above, or to anything in creation. He is simply in a completely different league. However much we may want to explain God in nice, neat ways, God transcends our categories. He is quite literally, quite literally incomparable. As we come to the end of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's last words that he writes in his book. They are of God promising to be with his people, among his people, permanently. The theological word for that is imminence. God would be imminent, present with his people. And God's intention has always been for men and women to enjoy the presence of God. We see that in Genesis in the garden where uh, God loved to come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then Adam's sin changed everything. Adam turned his back on the living God and walked away. Despite this, God is still 
present in his creation. In Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, we read this. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Wherever I go, he's saying, you are there. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. There is no place where God is not. And yet, creation, God is outside of his creation. So when you see a tree and you see people hugging a tree, they are not hugging God. God is above and beyond his creation, yet there is no place where God is not. And yet Ezekiel is promising something far greater, a return to the Garden of Eden. He's promising a day will come where God would be present amongst us, his people, in a way that he always intended. And with the transcendence and the imminent presence of God in mind, I want to draw out three things from what we can see in the book of Ezekiel. And the first thing we see is this, that God is uncontainable. Now, Ezekiel, if you have tried reading the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is hard reading. And there's, very simply, there's three ways you can do it. You can literally find verses that you feel are helpful for you and we use them. We take them out, we use them like fridge magnets and we put them on the fridge. That's one way that people read Ezekiel. The second way is that we just take chapters that we can uh, draw something from and we focus on them, like the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. And we take a chapter and we focus on a chapter. A far better way is for us to take a step back and consider the big picture. You see, Ezekiel is revealing a God who is glorious and holy, a God who hates our sin. Our sin is, uh, like I referred to Adam in the Garden, Garden of Eden, he turns his back on God, the God who created him, the God who gives him life, he turns his back on him and he lives without reference to him. That is the essence of sin. We live in a world where people have turned their back on the God who created them, who gives them life, who sustains their life. And we worship other gods. We worship idols, things of our own making. An idol can be anything. Anything that takes the place of God in our worship. God who created all things expects our worship. He is the great creator. And when we worship other things, when we put other things as priorities in our lives, that is what it means for us to turn our back on God. And it can be anything. It can be our family. It can be our job. It can be our children. It can be uh, our neighbors. It can be relationships. God deserves first place in our lives. Ezekiel graphically describes, as you read through Ezekiel, he graphically describes Israel, the people of God, abandoning the God who loves them. Some of the language is absolutely, it's, it's X-rated. 
reading some of those chapters on a Sunday morning, you'll be going, Steve, that's inappropriate to read on church on a Sunday morning. And yet it's there because God wants us to know the horror of our sin. The offense of our sin before a holy God. And Ezekiel says that judgment is inevitable. And it's deserved. We deserve it. We turn our back on the one who created us. How offensive is that? And for the people of God, it culminates in the temple being destroyed. The one thing that separated God's people from the nations of the earth, from every other people group, was that God dwelt among them in the temple. And the destruction of the temple meant that God had left his people. You see, the underlying problem was that the people of God knew God was glorious and holy. They knew it. And yet they ended up taking him for granted. They lived as if God was at their beck and call. Every time God blessed them, they soon forgot They believed their success was down to themselves. Does that ring true for us? We believe in a God who's holy and glorious. And we pray and God does amazing things in our lives. And then then very quickly, we suddenly, it's all about us and how well we've done. The people of God used to come to the temple to worship God at required times and they would pay their dues but they were just going through the motions. They knew God was present. They knew that he was present in the temple but they'd lost sight of his transcendence. They'd lost sight of his greatness and his glory and his holiness and it didn't end well. What about us? Do we try to keep God in a box? Is God just there to do our bidding? We turn to him when we want something. Too many of us are like what I call one-armed bandit Christians. If you don't know what a one-armed bandit is, it's one of those fruit machines. You put money in and you pull the handle And then the the wheels go round. And if all the symbols come up the same, you get the jackpot. You hit the jackpot. Too many of us treat God like that. We come before him and we go, God, help me. It's like a one-armed bandit. Do we come before God on a Sunday morning without giving him any thought during the rest of the week? Are we going through the motions? Have we lost sight of how great and how awesome and how holy and how wonderful he really is? God cannot be contained. God will not be contained. God will not allow us to box him in, in walls and boundaries of our making. And Ezekiel is a salutary warning 
of what happens if we try to control a God who is great and glorious. God is uncontainable. Secondly, Ezekiel promises a new day when God is with us. Ezekiel spoke of a day when God would unify his people and would dwell among them forever. The nation of Israel had separated, split into two nations, the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. But both of them ended up going into exile at separate times. God promises a day when he's going to bring them back together as one people. He would deal with their sin once and for all. And he would change their hearts towards him. Ezekiel promises a day when he would take their old stony hearts and he would give them a heart of flesh. And he would pour his spirit on them. He would take the bare bones of a dead nation. He would breathe life into those bones. And he would restore them to be a people who loved him and followed him. And then he promises that God would give them a new king. He says, my servant David will be king over them and they will have all have one shepherd. Of course, Ezekiel is prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus, God's son, becomes a man, is born. He's speaking of Jesus, David's greater son. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Ezekiel. Jesus came and said that he was the good shepherd. He's the one that lays down his life for the sheep. Matthew says of Jesus' birth, Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus the transcendent God came and dwelt among us. In John chapter 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word. It's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the one, of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, if we want to understand what it looks like for the God who is transcendent to be present, to be imminent with us, we need look no further than Jesus let me give you two quick examples. In the Gospel of John, Philip is, uh, has encountered Jesus. And in John chapter 1, we read about Philip going to find his friend to tell him. He, says, he finds Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, I've found the Messiah. Come and see for yourself. And so... Uh, Nathaniel sort of says, well, can anything good come from that place where he was born? But he goes along and he's a bit cynical. 
And as he arrives in front of Jesus, Jesus says uh, this to him. He says, he says, I know you. And Philip, uh, Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How can you know me? This is the first time you met me. And Jesus says this, I saw you while you were still sitting under the fig tree before Philip found you. How could he know that? How could he know what he was doing? Philip didn't know. So how could Jesus know where Nathanael had been and what Nathanael had been doing? He is the God who sees, who knows. He is the transcendent God and suddenly, suddenly Nathanael knows. He says, oh God, I'm in the presence of God. There's a moment in Mark chapter 6, the disciples are crossing the Lake of Galilee at night. The, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Incredible miracle. They, the disciples didn't really quite understand what was going on. Jesus has worked a miracle with a lunchbox. He's fed 5,000 men and women and children on top. And there's stuff left over. And Jesus, at the end of it, Jesus sends his disciples, says, go across the lake. You go, I'm going to pray. So Jesus is up a mountain, on the side of a mountain praying. And uh, the wind kicks off as the disciples are rowing across the lake. And the wind's against them. So you've got to imagine it's the fourth watch of the night. It's dark. The wind is against them. The waves are coming over the boat. And they're straining against the oars. And then it says this, Jesus saw them. How could he see them? He's a mile away, probably. He's halfway up a mountain. It's dead of night. How can he see them? He is the transcendent God. And then Jesus comes to them walking on the water. The transcendent God walks to them across this stormy lake. And they're like, oh, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it's me. And he gets into the boat and the wind stops. The storm stops immediately. The transcendent God who draws near. You see, Jesus was completely God and man. He dealt with our sin once and for all on the cross. He died in our place so that a holy God could forgive us. On the cross, he was forsaken by his father that we might never need be forsaken. That we might never need be separated from our father ever again. That is the gospel. And if you're here today and you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ who is both God and man, the transcendent God, yet the one who comes and draws near. You can do it today. You can put your trust in him and say, Jesus, I want to know you. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill my life. Jesus, I submit my life to you. I will follow you. You can do that today. Jesus promises, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's his last words in the Gospel of Matthew. I will be with you to the very end of the age. And then he promptly ascends into heaven and they never see him again.
What's going on? God with us? Well, Ezekiel promises a day when it wouldn't be just God with us, but God being in us. You see, Jesus had already prepared the way. He'd said in John's Gospel in chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your, to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus was both God and man. He could only be in one place at the time. But he said, there's a day coming. I'm going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will dwell in each one of you. It's the fulfillment of Ezekiel's great prophecy, great promise. And Ezekiel's prophecy ends with the details of a new temple. You can read it in, as you read through the book. You read this chapter and chapter after chapter talking about a new temple, dimensions of a new temple. But the point is that temple was never built. Why on earth was he talking about that? Why does he spend so long going into details of a temple that never gets built? I believe that God is speaking prophetically through Ezekiel that one day God is going to build a new house. But it wouldn't be a house of bricks and mortar. It would be a house. It would be a people. God was going to gather people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and was going to knit them together into what the New Testament calls the church. Those who have put their trust in Jesus are now, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the temple of God, a living house. And the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, was the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. The Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, now dwells within you. But here's the challenge for us as we are drawing to a close. Awareness of his transcendence, of his greatness, of his glory, of this holy God that dwells in us. And among us should provoke us, should make a difference. And it should do it in two ways. The first thing is it should make us careful how we live. In the Old Testament, when people encountered the presence of God, do you know what happened? They fell on their faces as though dead. They were, became aware of the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. Their unworthiness. When the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we should be aware of the holiness of God. It should make a difference to how we live and how others see us living. The Apostle Paul, in his letters, encourages us to put off bad behavior like discarding an old coat that's no longer needed. And instead, we clothe ourselves with new behavior, speech, attitudes that honor God who lives in us by his spirit. You see, if the Holy God is dwelling with us, it should make a difference to how we live, how we speak, how we behave. Our desire 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 should not should be to not grieve the Holy Spirit we should want to please him not offend him the Holy Spirit dwells among us here's the challenge for us have we lost sight of the transcendence of God who dwells among us we need to be asking God daily to speak to us by his spirit. That's why in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist says, search me and try me, O God. If there is any offensive way, any unclean way within me, show me, I wanna, I wanna walk before you rightly. In writing to the Philippians, his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul concludes by drawing attention to two women that he knows really well, Yodia and Sintichi. They have fallen out. They've had a mega disagreement. Their disagreement is so serious that Paul writes about it in a letter to the church. You imagine that that happened here. Apostle Paul, and I'm reading out a letter. I've just got a letter from the Apostle Paul, and then he mentions two of you who've fallen out. <gasps> Why does he do it? Because God is a holy God. God is a relational God. Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't say, she's right, she's wrong. He doesn't do that at all. He simply pleads with them, be reconciled to one another. Put it right. Why? Because God's spirit dwells within each one of them. Both women clearly thought they were right. Whenever we're in a situation when we fall out with someone, we're always right, aren't we? Have you ever fallen out with someone and thought, oh, I'm wrong, they're right? There wouldn't be a disagreement if that was the case, would there? Then Paul tells them why they should get right with each other and sort themselves out. He says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in God, rejoice in the Lord. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the, the God who is awesome and holy and glorious. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He is the Lord and he is near. God has been so gentle and merciful and kind to us as we heard when Liv read from Ephesians chapter 2. We didn't deserve it. We have received the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. And yet we can be so unforgiving and angry and judgmental and critical. The Lord is near. I went to, uh, I'm a Saints fan. Pray, you can pray for me later. And I went to St. Mary's and uh, I remember going to this one game and as I was leaving, leaving just a couple of minutes before the end to miss the crowd, um, it was one of those moments we had lost. Uh, it hadn't been a great ending. Um, 
And as I'm walking out, there's a guy in front of me and he's shouting. No one can hear him, he's shouting at the pitch. He's shouting at the referee, he's shouting at the opposition fans, he's shouting at the opposition players, and he'd completely lost it. And his language was not great. And then he turned round and saw me, and he was in the church that I was part of. <gasps> he suddenly stopped, said, hi, Steve, and went very quickly. <laughs> Here's the point. He would have never done that if he'd known I was standing behind him. The living God, the transcendent God, is near every moment of every day in every situation. When you're driving your car and someone cuts you up, he's sitting next to you. The Holy Spirit is in you. He sees. Let's live with an awareness of the nearness of God. We need to be careful how we live. And then the last thing is this, we need to be confident in every situation. Having said that the Lord is near, Paul then says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He just said, the Lord is near, and then he goes on to say, don't be anxious about anything. Anxiety and fear they cast shadows of things that haven't yet happened and may never happen. Somehow the shadow of them, the impact of them on us can have an impact on our mental health. Maybe you find yourself immobilized by fear, with crippling anxiety, with spiraling negative thoughts. Fear causes faith in God to literally seep away. And the antidote is to live with an awareness of the nearness of the Lord. If he is with us, and he is, we have no reason to be anxious. He is the all-powerful God who created all things, and he loves us and is for us. We need to live with an awareness of the nearness of God and the shadow of his presence. In Psalm 91, it says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. We need to live in the presence of God, the shadow of God, rather the shadow of things that haven't yet happened. Trusting in his presence changes how we face any and every situation. Even when we face life-threatening illnesses. As David says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is with us irrespective of how we feel. We may not feel he's near. It's not about our feelings. He is near. T. 
Tim said last week when talking about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace, thrown into the fiery furnace, and the king looks on and he sees these three men walking around Unbound and he says, I, I see four, four men, one who is glorious and splendid, walking with them. Now here's the thing, and Tim said it last week. As he was saying it, I was thinking it before he said that. Because I'm thinking about today. They, we don't know that they knew they felt his presence. We don't, just don't know that. But he was with them in the fiery furnace. God is with us irrespective of how we feel. Jacob is an Old Testament character, just like us. Just like us, full of flaws, yet loved by God. There's a moment that he realizes that God is near. And it says this in Genesis 28, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And ever after, Jacob believes that God is with him. I want to say today, as gently as I can, it's time for us to wake up to the fact that God is with us. Jehovah, Shammah, is the covenant name of God. That's the phrase that Ezekiel is using. God is there, the Lord is there. It's his covenant name, it's his promise. God never breaks his word. He's promised on who he is that he will be with us. If we are continually filled with the Spirit, we can never be alone. And we're going to worship God in a moment and then Angie's going to lead us in a response. And one of the responses is to be filled with the Spirit, amongst other things. God promises to be with us where we live, where we work, and where we gather to worship. Nicky Gumbel puts it like this, and I'm going to finish with this. It's only when we understand the transcendence of God that we see how amazing his imminence is and what a huge privilege it is to be able to enjoy God's intimate friendship. Let's stand together. The band's going to lead us in worship and just going to lead us in a response in a moment. Let's stand before God. Let's close our eyes. Let's reach out our hands and say, God, you are here. I want to know you in a new way in this moment from now on. Meet with me today. Ask God to meet with you. Be asking God to speak to you. Asking God to draw close as we worship.